Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. I'm Rowan. And I'm Blue. And today we're talking about game loops and time. All games are based around at least one core loop, and we are exploring how those loops relate to playtime and play session length. So all games have game loops, of course, but these games are particularly explicit with the relationship between those loops and how long you're intended to play these games and how long those loops are going to be. But first, what's a game loop? A game loop, I would say, is this kind of core activity that you expect your players to do that gets them through majority of the game, if not all of the game. This set of actions... And sometimes a game loop is like, I'm going to run down a corridor, shoot a thing, and then I'll start again, run down another corridor, shoot another thing, right? That can be the simplest loop in a game. And sometimes it's a bit more complex. Sometimes it is this, I guess, slight spoiler for one of the things we're going to talk about, where you're going to play a roguelike and a loop is, I'm going to start a run, go through this series of challenges, eventually die. And like that's a full loop. Would, would you agree? That's a full loop, yeah. And a lot of games use a loop that includes progression. So, for example, with Diablo, the loop is more or less kill monsters, get money, use money to get power, kill more monsters. Or use rewards, sorry, to get more power. Then you need to use that new power to kill more monsters. So ever-increasing as well. Yeah, you don't have to start from the same point that you ended on. A loop loops upward in most games, oddly, if that, if that makes sense as a phrase. Usually loops, thing, things are increasing, like ran down a corridor, kill monsters, go to the next corridor. The next corridor will presumably have more difficult monsters. And the skills you've learned from fighting previous monsters are the progression part there that is less easy to lay out as clearly as get loot, but it's still there. So the function of a game loop, a core loop, is to build on experience. It's so that you give your players this relatable experience that they're familiar with. You teach them how to do something simple. Good. Can they do it again? Good. Now can we add a complication onto it? And then you keep teaching them in that way. And sometimes you will fail a loop and have to redo it. But the idea is that the loop allows you that common language with the game to understand more complicated problems as you go down. And so if you've ever looked at someone playing a game and they're three quarters of the way through or on the final boss and you're just looking at it going, wow, that's so complicated. I don't know if I could ever learn how to play the game like that. The part that you're missing is the part where they just started the loop early and it's, it was a lot simpler and all the complications got added on in time. So they all layer in slowly and building and building and building. And these games we're going to talk about today, what's distinct about them is the relationship between the loops and how they relate to the time that the designers expect you to play. They're much more explicit about that relationship than most games are. And so our first game, we're going to talk about something that's extremely explicit with it, Monster Hunter World. Monsanto World came out in 2018, released by Capcom, and is the most recent addition to the famed Monster Hunter series. And while remarkable for moving things ahead, is equally remarkable in how much is the same. Most notably for our discussion is that it still maintains the very explicit 50-minute timer on most missions that have been with the series since its origins back on the PS2. So Monster Hunter, if you're not familiar with exactly how it works, is you go on a hunt using usually oversized weapons, to fight a large monster, gather materials from it, and then use those to create weapons and armor, which are usually stronger, and go fight more of them. It's a very simple idea. You kill things, 
to get the things from them to be able to kill other things. It's the basis of many a great game. And it doesn't need to be much more complicated than that, which is what's like beautiful about this game. They can just say very explicitly on this on the box, yeah, you're gonna come in here, you're gonna swing a big sword around, you're gonna kill monsters, and that's gonna be it really. And that core game loop is, as you said, it hasn't changed in, in the entire life of the game's franchise, which is how many games now, roughly? In terms of very distinct raw entries, we're probably at like five or six mainline titles, but there's arguments, but each of them has a revised version and there are a few like extra little bits here and there. So there's enough of them. Uh, over a period of something like not quite 20 years. Like not quite 20 years. years. Early yeah, PS2 like, game, yeah. early online PS2 game, and probably the biggest early change was that you used to fight with the right analog stick Mm. to control your weapon not camera control weapon actions which is wasn't very popular at the time and the series really found a lot of success with the psp um which we will tie into some things we're going to go into a little bit but basically they hit on a very simple formula early on and they just iterated on it and so in the in the latest entry monster hunter world which we're like talking about explicitly here, you have this very simple loop of go and kill a monster and do a thing. And what they've added on to that is a couple of story elements if you're playing the main single player story stuff. Once you get to a certain point though, the game really just opens up and you're free to do whatever. So there are kind of two parts to this. The first part is when you're first starting out, you are just going through the sequence, going through and killing the target monster, reporting back to your base camp, getting a bit of story. That's, a, that's the simple loop. Because of the fixed time limit of 50 minutes, you know it won't take you more than that. It really probably will take you about 20 to 30 when you're first starting out, when you're first getting used to the game. You'd start to develop this very clear estimate of, oh, at most it'll be 50 minutes. Like, if it reaches 50 minutes, I fail. So you know how much time you can put into it. Once you're more familiar with the game, once the game opens up, you have really internalized that time limit now. You really can look at a hunt and go, or you can actually look at your clock and go, I have time for one hunt if it's roughly this difficulty. And part of that plays into the 50 minutes, part of that plays into how well you know the game and its difficulty. And even when you come up against a new experience, let's say additional content that's been added, uh, an encounter you've never done before, you can still look at the time limit and go, maximum 50 minutes. I will learn this fight in that time. And that does wonders for the player being able to plan out what they want to do, how often they want to do it with the game. And it also really factors into the fact that Monster Hunter is primarily a multiplayer experience. While it is a very strong single player experience, it's intended for that multiplayer. And often on consoles, communication tools were not great. So it helps encourage everyone to go towards the main goal. You don't get in Monsanto people like running off and just gathering herbs for 20 minutes. People get right stuck into it because while there is time to spare, like it's not a strict time limit that you're likely to run into it. It's strict enough that if you don't approach it soon, then there is the risk of failing. And that really helps everyone work together and it prevents a lot of player disputes that often go on in online RPGs and things. It also helps when you're trying to get a group of friends together to know roughly how long a hunt takes. You can decide if you have enough time for one more. You can say, mm, I sorry, I have 15 minutes, which in a lot of games, 15 minutes is a really ambiguous amount of things you can get done. In most hunts in Monster Hunter that are challenging, 15 minutes is just shy of being able to do a hunt comfortably. <laughs> do you agree with that time? 
estimate roughly yeah yeah in general i would say that unless like you're really too powerful for the hunt that you're doing then yeah you're really looking at like 20-ish minutes for most things and eventually the games do play with this time limit a little bit you get encounters that are either have a short time limit and you feel it when you suddenly go from 50 to 30 it's like oh that's actually not much time even though you were usually under it like you feel it much more strongly and one of the things is that the game gives you a 10 minute out time warning and that's not a notification at least when i was playing that i was used to seeing so seeing that oh you have 10 minutes to go you know you're probably in the last phase of the fight by that point but it still puts the the fire under your feet to kind of like try to end the fight there and then yeah it puts a bit of pressure because you after spending 40 minutes in the in a match losing for a timeout because you just weren't paying enough attention would be really frustrating and the time also acts as a little bit of a dps check like if you cannot defeat a monster within the 50 minutes something is wrong with either the way you're approaching it your build your skill level something is wrong and it's a good way for the game to tell you you have to reevaluate this something is not going on right and I guess one thing that is fairly new for Monster Hunter World in terms of players and scheduling is daily login bonuses. This is something that is new to this particular entry in that every day you log in, you get rewards, usually a lucky ticket, if I recall correctly, that gives you double rewards off a single mission. Yep. Are there other daily rewards or is that the only one? There are other daily rewards. They tend to be very low impact items like low level craftables, such as 30 of a type of ammo, which of which you use much more than 30 in one hunt normally, or like three of uh, not the basic potion, but like something a bit more advanced than that. So the three of a curative item. You know, things like that. So just little things that are especially valuable to new players, I take it, right? They're helpful to new players, but playing the game at any kind of capacity normally gives you enough to get by. So the game definitely is not contingent on making you play across days to get the daily login bonuses, but having the buffer helps. Having an extra daily login bonus helps you to just go, I can just use this. It it doesn't. And daily login bonuses are a really powerful tool because they help make the game a part of your schedule. Oh, I'll boot up Monster Hunter World to get the reward because why not? And oh, now I'm going to do this mission since I'm already logged in and made the session and all that. And it's a powerful tool that a lot of online games use. Just getting you to interact with the thing just once in the day helps you do it more and it just becomes habit. And when games can become habits, that's really powerful for developers. Because once you've committed to starting the game, to getting into a game session, that's a lot of the mental barrier of, do I want to play this game out of the way? And especially when the core loop is so explicit, you know roughly a hunt, if you're prepared for it, is 20 minutes, 30 minutes. If it's, you know, at worst case, it's a 50 minute, yeah, you can just look at your watch and go, I have nothing to do for the next half hour. Sure, I'll do a hunt. That gets people that keeps people involved in the game. I guess the last like thing regarding the scheduling aspect is events. So periodically Monster Hunter's had events where you can fight special limited time monsters. Um, at the time of recording, there's one with the Jagras that drops lots of diamonds, is that right? Yep. Uh, decorations decorations and i'm sure by the time you hear this episode that will have been well and truly over and these help people who've lapsed in these daily logins to come back in and be like oh there's a thing for me to see come back in develop that routine again and maybe stick with the game another two weeks three weeks more 
getting into that rhythm. Depending on how much you commit to the game, Monster Hunter doesn't take a super long amount of time for you to get to the point where you can take on anything in the game. And without its progression, there isn't huge incentives to play it. And so that's what these time-limited events are for, to say, hey, we have this cool experience. And sometimes it genuinely is just new content that's never been seen with new mechanics that they haven't played with before. And that's all really cool and fun to play with. So, you know, getting more effectively more bang for your buck because you're not most of these add-ons are free i don't think there has been an encounter add-on that has required money in monster hunter world's life cycle yet that's right we've got dlc coming this year uh nothing so far content wise has been paid yeah so there's been cosmetic stuff that's been paid but nothing content wise has been pay, uh has been pay entry yet so it gives people incentive to come back and then just tries to get them back into the rhythm of logging in because one of the things about the events is that you tend to only be able to get a certain number of event tickets per day and that's what gets you the event cosmetics the event outfits the event weapons and stuff like that and so they they do try to meet uh, out and try to ration out event stuff event items to keep you coming back to try and rebuild that loop and that's fine if you know what you're getting into you probably won't get stuck back too much into it at the end of the day once the event ends you're still at max level ish quote unquote for whatever level system there is in the game and you you're back in the same spot of yeah i guess i'll wait for the next event and when it comes around they also tend to be pretty generous in the time frame they allow events tend to last for two to three weeks if you're interested in the game if you're interested in the event the the theory is that you'll find time to play it and some would see this as predatory it's not it is it definitely is to some extent but there are much worse models with much harsher uh, punishments and, and about the time limits and stuff like that and thinking about much more predatory and harsher models let's talk about our next game grand blue fantasy So that's a bit of a harsh lead-in to Grand Blue Fantasy, a 2014 social RPG by Cygames for mobile phones and the web. It was one of the earliest super huge mobile phone games in Japan. It's a gacha game, as some people call it, where rather than paying for explicit power and items, you are paying for random chances to obtain things. Some people call them loot boxes. Everything uses different terms, but often for mobile games, we refer to this genre as gacha games. And it's it's one of the games that prompted Japan to regulate mobile games and this kind of loot box style obtaining of power. We're talking about Grand Blue though in the context of schedules and time, and like a lot of free-to-play games, Grand Blue uses a stamina system. How Grand Blue plays is like a standard-ish Japanese role-playing game. You get into encounters, you get experience, you get power, and you repeat that loop until you have extremely powerful characters doing more and more content. It's a little bit structured like an MMO in terms of general progression, but if you just think JRPG, a lot of these things will stay on track. So you have two main resources of stamina that are how this game keeps you on its schedule. You have AP, which you recover more slowly, but it's used for very important progression in terms of power progression. And using a full amount of AP takes about eight minutes to do about three quests, but takes about six and a half hours to fully recover. The second resource is for raids and things like that, which takes a bit less time to fully consume about five minutes, 
and about 90 minutes to fully recover. What this means is that the game incentivizes you to come back to it once every 90 minutes for one resource to optimally use it, and once every six and a half hours to optimally use it. And the timeframes it takes to use these things fit super neatly into commutes or breaks or just short little spaces in your life that really make this game sink into all the little pockets of time that you have in the day, which a lot of people view as being incredibly manipulative. When you hear this, Blue, what do you think about that sort of deeply rooting in your life? That isn't the part that's deeply manipulative, in my opinion. I think it's very sensible because this is some free time. It's not like you're holding them outside of a bus and shaking them down for money. You're saying, here, have some entertainment. If you want, give us some money for it as well. Because the other thing about it is that it's a free-to-play game. And it's worth saying, like, they're not shaking you for money. Actually, a lot of the Japanese gacha-style games give you a lot of free ways to get more AP, so the ability to do more quests, and EP, the ability to do more of the social quests, in lots of different ways. In Grand Blue, you get some by tweeting once a day about the game. You get some by playing some mini-games or getting, like, this alternate non-purchasable currency. So for free, every day you can get about two to three hours of content pretty trivially. Having said that, having said that, I want to say, so I, I don't think the time that the game is designed for is predatory. There are other bits of it there. That's not what we're here to talk about today. So keep that in mind if you're listening to this, that a lot of the design of how much time something is supposed to take, how much effort you're supposed to spend in the game, how much you're supposed to interact with the game, that is relatively mild, but there is definitely a side that has some things that maybe aren't so nice like skinner box theories uh and you know slot machine style lights and colors and and rewards and feel goods to make you want to come back that's a whole other discussion we're here today to talk about how long it takes to do things and that aspect of it not super predatory it makes a lot of sense there is a gap there and you're saying this is something that you could find fun I enjoyed this game extremely. I really get into this. It's been a great fun thing to tinker with for the last year. What's interesting though is like, if you look at these timeframes, how they fit into your life. So Grand Blue is designed for a commuting culture where stops on a train line are probably between one and a half to two minutes long. And most quests take about one to two minutes. So you can easily like do a quest, get to your next stop. They fit in into this very like, tiny schedule in your day they fit in like a bit in your lunch break and i think that's the interesting part to this design like it's designed to fit in all those small spaces in your life and just become like a pleasant habit and since a lot of the game's money making strategies around collecting characters it helps you get invested in all the characters by just spending lots of time with them every day the game also uses login rewards much like monster hunter world grand blue's rewards function a bit differently in that there's a structure of 15 days of rewards and every day you just get the next one you said that monster hunter world has a slightly different structure so one thing that we didn't quite bring up in the monster hunter world section which is worth contrasting to here now if in grand blue if you miss a day's login you didn't tick up in the schedule but you just get the next one. So you don't move closer to the 15 day limit. So on day one, you log in. If on day two, you don't. On day three, when you log in, you would get the day two reward. That's right. 
However, with Monster Hunter World, if you miss a day, you get the previous day's reward and the current days, up to a maximum of five. So you could theoretically not log in for five days, and when you log in, you would get all five days' rewards, and then the next time you log in, you would get you know day six or whatever. But you don't miss those rewards by not logging in up to a maximum of five days. Is that if that makes sense? So if you log in twice a week, you more or less get everything. All the daily, assuming you use them, because you also have a cap on how many of the lucky tickets you can hold. So you you need to use them as well. Uh, and that's the that's the quote unquote predatory part. Like ah, you can keep getting them, but you need to actually play the game at some. Well, okay, fair enough. You need to play the game at some. Mm. And Grand Blue is trying to get you in that schedule, in that rhythm of just going to it, playing a little bit, and fitting neatly in your day. Because Monster Hunter World is like, it's a big time commitment. You have to boot it up, load it up, it takes time. And the time it get, takes to open a mat, open a game and set a mission in Monster Hunter World, you've probably already done a quest in something like Grand Blue. Easily. And a lot of these things I'm saying about Grand Blue apply to a lot of other mobile phone gacha games, like Dragalia Lost by Nintendo and Fire Emblem Heroes use very similar tactics quite a lot. Square has a whole bunch of Final Fantasy-themed gacha games as well. A lot of these games, to be completely honest, are just using the aesthetic to sell you on something. But the the ones that set themselves apart are, I believe, Grand Blue, and there was another Kantai collection, maybe? Um, I'm not sure about Kantai Collection. I know Fate Grand Order, Fate Grand Order is yes. also considered to be mechanically very good and story-wise yes. very yes. rich. Yes. Fate Grand Order, definitely the one I was thinking of, that really try to put in the extra effort to make it worthwhile, not just in terms of progression as you play the game, but to give you a, an interesting story as you go along. Now, one of the things about the time limit and stuff like that is that that helps both the players and developers ration out how much they want to play. So a a typical problem with a subscription-based service game, that is to say a game that is expecting you to keep playing over a long period of time, and in exchange it is providing new content over a long period of time, which means that development is basically continuously ongoing, new content is continuously being made, there is a very infinite feeling endpoint to the game. One of the problems is how do you ration out content. MMOs have traditionally struggled with this. They drop a big patch of content, people consume it. The the speedrun people, the really grindy part of your community will consume it within two days. And then they have to wait three to four months for content again. And they feel compelled to consume it because they want to know what happens. They want to see what's coming next. And it's very hard to get a feel for where that content is going to end. So even if they wanted to ration it out for themselves, there's not that supernatural way to do it. Whereas with games like Grand Blue and Fate Grand Order, when content is dropped, you tend to have a feel of how long it is based on how much time you've put into the game before, right? You have a rough idea how many quests it'll take to get to the end of the current quest line, correct? That's right. They're very clear about what these timeframes really are. Yeah. And so this time-restricted stamina system with the AP and the EP, it helps the developers go, all right, we need something that takes this amount of time, should take them this amount of the AP. Very, very easy to just look at a spreadsheet and go, have we filled that up enough to be worthwhile to the players, to have content that is worth delivering to the players. And from the player's perspective, you get this ability to go, I have this much to go. I 
I could rush it, but if I catch up to where that content ends, then what else am I going to do? It's not like, you know, the game wasn't designed to be played for hours on end, and it shouldn't be. So players understand that the best way to get the most out of this content, which is still limited, right? It's still not an infinite amount, even if technically they're going to keep developing it forever. Yeah, there's a limited amount of content. I mean, you can, there are lots of ways to improve your power sort of infinitely, but yeah, there's an end amount of content in Grand Blue. Grand Blue is considered one of the higher content gacha games overall, and it's not everything consumes resources as well, like the story content. It's pretty long, like I'm only halfway through it after a year, but you can play all the story content more or less for free. Like it costs no in-game resource to do most of it. I don't know about Grand Order. I think Grand Order has stamina requirements for most story missions. Yeah. Because that's a very unique thing to Grand Blue is that story missions don't give you much mechanical progression. They just give you more story mostly. Uh, yeah, and then so just to finish the point, it's just a way for both the player and the developer to know how much content they need to put down every so often. It's a neat structure to hang your content on your your game mechanics on. So Grand Blue, yeah, it has that combination of everyone knows what's going on, like the expectations are set pretty clearly, and it just neatly meshes into your life. And thinking about games that are like structured very deliberately, let's talk about Persona 4, shall we? So Persona 4 is a game that was developed and published by Atlas in 2008 originally. It is a life sim RPG where you fight through people's subconsciousness to help them basically understand themselves better. And the really big addition to the RPG format that I like out of Persona 4 is that you get to do this while playing their main character's day-to-day -day life. So you don't run a full 24 hours on every day, but for every day when the game starts in April 20-something, I don't remember the exact number, all the way up to when the game ends, you play basically every day. I think there's a couple of exceptions where they skip across a couple of days, but you get to see for every day there's at least playable day there's at least two time periods that you get to have control of the main character and that's just a very neat little way to frame an rpg story because persona 4 tries to tell a relatively long form story something that takes place over the course of the better part of a year from april to the main mystery solved in december of a year and instead of glossing over time periods they just let you play through every single day, giving you this great context for time. And the fact that they do it day by day, like that's, I think, the real trick to Persona is that it's day by day. A lot of really long form RPGs, you sort of get lost in the overall time that it takes to play. You don't know how long things are going to take. You don't know how long, how far you are in this story. Whereas you literally see this timer tick up every in-game day and you know that you're going to make it there because the game just keeps moving forwards at a fairly nice pace so even though it's very long it feels really manageable thanks to that day-by-day -day structure and you just kind of should ask yourself like think of your favorite rpg slash jrpg you know for as an example final fantasy we've both professed quite a bit of love for final fantasy 8 but trying to pin down 
how much time canonically and chronologically and you know how events are happening chronologically in Final Fantasy VIII is actually kind of hard because you're not given any kind of indication of how long any event is or when an actual day-night cycle takes place. There are a couple of events, but that's about it. And so you end up just playing through it and then you look at the clock and go, oh wow, that's been you know X amount of time. But every time a day happens in Persona, you get this like small indication from the game to pay attention to time. And so you get an understanding of how much time you spend in an average day that you don't go out dungeoneering. And eventually you start to get an understanding of how long it takes to traverse dungeons as well. So it's really easy to schedule Persona 4 into your life and it's got lots of like super neat and very clear breakpoints that feel like you've accomplished something of some merit at least. Whereas for other RPGs, it can be very ambiguous as to how much you've accomplished in any given play session. So let's talk a bit about the loop because that's a big part of what this is, the the game loop that you are doing and how that relates to time. So each Persona 4 day is broken up into two time periods. There may sometimes be an event in the morning, uh, not always, that doesn't count, but you get control of the main character after school ends and that's your daytime period slash afternoon period. You can do things like go into a dungeon, progress social links to get further power-ups and stuff like that. You have a lot of free actions in this time and by that we mean that you can do this and it doesn't move the time forward so you can go to item shops, you can buy stuff, you can buy weapons, you can manage your personas and upgrade all of that kind of stuff. The core like costed thing that you can do in this time is either do a job or study or interact with someone that progresses your socially related stats and all of that will move time forward and that puts you at the night phase and then at the night phase you have less options available to you for example you can't go into a dungeon at night in persona 4 in any of the versions is that correct in any version you cannot go during the night yeah yeah Uh, But you get some new things. So some events become different at night. For example, there's a fishing minigame that you can do, uh, which does move time forward, and you can get items out of it. You can do this fishing minigame in the day, but at night you get benefits like you can get the bigger fish at night and stuff like that. These two time periods make up one of the two core loops of the game. And this is one of those kinds of games that because it's a long-form RPG, it offers two very distinct play styles and play modes. The day-to-day life one, which we've been talking about, and then the the dungeoneering aspect of it. Do you want to talk about the dungeon side of things? Sure. The dungeon side, mostly limited by your MPs. The combat plays out like a standard JRPG. You put in commands, battles follow a general sort of sequence of attack, attack, heal, like a lot of these sort of games tend to, with a strong emphasis on weaknesses. While the day-to-day life is like very neatly structured in terms of how long you're probably going to spend in a given day, dungeons can take a lot longer. A lot of players tend to do the Persona 4 dungeons in one big long sitting, but many players might break it up into two or three small sessions and yeah your limiting factor for those that really determines how long you can keep going is your mp because in persona your spells and magic are what get you through battles at a remotely reasonable pace you can't just mash attack through them so there are these two different modes and different speeds of game and you can see that there is a very clear distinction already on how structured the day-to-day stuff is You literally get a calendar ticking you day to day. But with the dungeon side of things, it's a bit more ambiguous how long you end up spending for a dungeon. And it's worth saying that a lot of the reception to the Persona games is that while often people like get drawn to them because they seem like interesting RPGs, people tend to stick with them 
for that day-to-day life and they kind of wish a lot of people act like maybe they wish the dungeons weren't there <laughs> i think that the persona games would be worse dreadfully those. boring dreadfully boring without them because they add a very important bit of variety to the flow of the game like you can play lots of little short sessions in the super structured day-to-day sequences and then when you're feeling like you've got a bit of time in your schedule you can just sit down and like have a nice big meaty run through a dungeon so while it's never clear how long a dungeon will take you you know you don't have a hard time limit like monster hunter world where it's like 50 minutes that's it you don't have this very clear stamina system like yes it's dependent on your mp but you can manage a lot of how much you hemorrhage your mp so while it's not clear how exactly long a dungeon session will take it is clear that it's a time commitment that when you decide to go into a dungeon you are committing to trying to do a relatively complex task with many moving parts because you're trying to progress through a dungeon learn about the enemies if you're if it's your first time through the dungeon and get to the end while losing as little mp as possible you know that it's going to take you a chunk of time and once you do a couple of dungeons you start to notice that they take roughly the same amount of time i feel yeah i would say that's true they all take a roughly similar amount of time with a few exceptions here and there yeah so in my case personally that was about an hour to an hour and a half whenever i wanted to try and one shot a dungeon and did you have a similarish experience i feel like i took a little bit longer for some but i was playing persona 4 golden compared to you playing the original ps2 version and that might account for the differences and it was relatively consistent to the player I think is an important part here. So the structure of it works out very well once you get familiar with it. While the previous two were previous two games we talked about, Monster Hunter World and Grand Blue Fantasy, are very much games where you go, I have this amount of time, I'll just sit down and do this. This one is more structured in such a way that the player knows what to expect. If they're in the frame of mind that, okay, I need to get through this sequence of days. I want to get this social link up. I want to get this character stat up. Then they know roughly what they're in for. They know roughly how long each day is going to take. If they want it, they can actually speed through that really quickly. And it's this very nice, I know exactly what I'm coming in for. Slightly more abstract is going into a dungeon and coming up to a story point that requires you to go into a dungeon because then you don't know exactly how long it's going to take but you still know that it's this rough amount of time committed to it and that's not to say that you can't even save in the dungeon you have to leave the dungeon to go out to the hub and save but you can do it so at worst case you can still break up that i would say uh, yeah a long loop but a loop you can suspend the loop yeah, you can suspend the loop uh, at the cost of some items probably, but you can suspend the loop. And so as the player, you still have this understanding of I can commit to this because I know roughly how long it's going to take. And even if my estimate becomes wrong, I can safely back out of that and come back to this another time. Thinking of player expectations, the last thing is that the game has a clear time limit by which you have to have done any given dungeon. Yes. But the game is very clear about telegraphing that this by having about a week's worth of rainy days in the game. And rainy days are distinctive because there's less to do during them as a whole. There's not nothing to do. You could do plenty with them, but you're definitely incentivized to push towards 
going to the dungeon in that week of rainy days, which is more than enough for most players, even those who are incredibly cautious and only doing a very little amount of the dungeon every day to be able to fit in. And I think those are all the main points of Persona 4. It is very structured and offers the player the ability to just look at the structure and go, this is what I want out of it at this time. So Persona 4 looks at this from a very like large scale perspective. Our next title looks at this from a much more arcadey sort of time structure. And we're looking at Rogue Legacy. Rogue Legacy is a 2013 roguelike by Celador Games. It's not the first roguelite by any means, but it established many of the conventions that are now staples in the roguelike genre, such as fairly constant sense of upgraded progression. In this game, you play through an ever-changing castle in a Metroidvania-style format, using the wealth you acquire to make the next in your family line stronger, so that hopefully they can take on the castle more successfully. So this game is about fairly short play blocks for the average player, where you go through the castle, you acquire some wealth, you die, you go and you buy some items, you improve your family line so that people who come later will have more tools to get further. So as you progress, you generally get more powerful each loop a little bit. I really think this game has an interesting game loop. So here's the gist of it, which you've already described. You start, go into the dungeon, you explore, you kill enemies, you gather gold, and then eventually you die. And in some respects, you would think that dying is the end of the loop. But no, the loop then continues to you come back out of the castle as your next generation. You upgrade your... uh, Ooh, what's the term for this? You upgrade your family line. I know, that's so weird because they use a castle to represent it, but you're going into a castle. Yeah, the visual metaphor is that you are increasing, like, your family's castle, your clan's wealth. Which is outside of this ancient castle that you're plundering for loot. But you upgrade your family line, your family tree, your family home, which gives you upgrades. And then you can start the loop over again. But what's interesting to me is that dying isn't the end of the loop, first of all. It's technically going back in. And that you can choose to break that loop in a couple of places, which is cool and interesting so you could choose to play until you die and then go yep cool next time i play i will pick a new class and then spend the gold or you can choose to pick the class uh, spend the gold and upgrades and then say cool next time i play i can just start straight away and like that's not much but it's an interesting adjustment to the core loop of the game where there's two sensible stop points and there's also this interesting idea of when you go into each loop, you often have a goal in mind. Like this time I want to collect money to upgrade a thing. And I want to collect a certain amount of money because I know how much that's going to be. Yes. One of the things with this money accumulation is that you don't get to keep any or most of it each time you re-enter the castle. So if the cheapest upgrade costs 100 gold and you only come out with 50, that's just lost money. It's a lost run. So you have to be getting more, which actually it's this really odd effect of as you go on, there's a good chance that your runs need to be, if not longer, at least deeper into the castle. Because thanks to the progression of getting more power, you tend to go through a little bit faster as you progress. But I think in my experience, my playstations got longer as I kept playing each time. But anyway, I was making the point, you go on with different goals. I want to get this much money or the overarching goal of the game is to defeat four bosses 
in the castle to then defeat the main boss. That's right, isn't it? Yes. Defeating each boss is effectively a key. You get four keys, you open the door, fight the big bad. And it is possible to do this in a single run, but for the average player, it is unlikely to the point of not being a realistic concern. Look at it from the perspective of how much you would have to do if this was your first time playing the game. You would have to learn the mechanics, which are relatively tight, but there are some unfair things about the mechanics, deliberately so. The amount of knockback that you suffer, the placement of traps, they're all designed to catch people. So they're not unfair in terms of you can never avoid them. They're unfair in terms of if it's your first time through, you're probably learning by mistake. You're you're probably trialing by error. That's a deliberate design because it's supposed to be a bit punishing. It also means that your first instinct is normally wrong. So as you're going through, you're also trying to fight first instinct actions. So when you stack on top of this, the typical things of learning enemies, learning enemy behaviors, learning bosses and their behaviors, and the fact that one of the things that you upgrade as you go along is damage. So while you can beat the bosses by just being better than them, you have a smaller margin of error because your life total is probably lower and the damage that you can deal is definitely lower. While possible, all those things together make it improbable. And if you are doing it in your first run, you've probably already played through the game once before. But it's important to balance around the possibility of doing it in that one playthrough. It's just unlikely. Like a lot of classical rogue likes is that it's theoretically possible to finish in your first playthrough, but purely based on knowledge, you almost certainly won't. Yep. In this game, you've got a bit of stats and raw numbers against you in this as well. So... With that in mind, the player is likely to loop. And let's bring this focus back to the play loop and time and how this fits in with the player's expectation, right? So with the previous games, you start to learn to expect very specific amounts of time out of the game. Even in the most abstract case with Persona 4, you start to learn that it'll probably take me roughly this amount of time because I took roughly this amount of time in previous dungeons. With Rogue Legacy... As you said, early runs tend to be shorter than later runs, or at least later good runs. And the amount of time that you set aside for a block of play, a core loop through, um, fully cycled, starts to get a bit iffy, but you know a few things. You know that a good loop will take you X amount of time, where you know X increases the further through your family line upgrade that you go, because otherwise it's just not worth it. So you know to start putting aside at least that amount of time if you want to get anything worthwhile out of the game in terms of progression. If you're just going for a boss rush, you start to get a feel of how large areas are and how fast it is to traverse them. So you get a feel for how much time that is as well. And these things coupled together make you start to be able to predict how much time you have to work with when you boot the game up, when you're selecting a character and stuff like that. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. And these loops are usually relatively small early on. The time spent in the initial runs is relatively short, which helps give that very popular, like, one more try feeling. Like, the amount of time lost is very little, even though you've mostly acquired rewards, which is what you wanted anyway. So it helps that very addictive nature come through in a lot of these rogue lights, not just rogue legacy. And when we say short, I'm going to throw a number out there. I think your first run, my first run, I'm pretty sure, was something like five minutes. Five minutes or less is a pretty typical first run, I feel, based on my own experience and watching a few people play. Yeah, especially if you're not used to roguelites, let alone the specific 
mechanics and eccentricities. There's a lot of unusual things going on here, like the speed of attack. There's a lot to learn. Yeah, like there is a wind-up on your attacks, yeah, and the range of things and, and stuff like that. So there's plenty to learn. And so, like, five minutes is such a short time when you think about sitting down to play a game. And then you get better, and then you get better, and suddenly that five minutes is like, ah, I need, like, 500 gold. And if I'm being careful in order to actually get to 500 gold, it's probably going to take me 30 minutes to get that, for example. Uh, I don't actually know that that's a number, but let's say. I know that some of the upgrades go up to, like, several thousand. Yes. So there gets to be a point where if you don't go really well, you can't upgrade very much at all, and that can really slow you down. Well, that's the thing, right? As we said before, you can beat the game from nothing. So it's the illusion that you're making no progress, whereas you might still be getting better at the game. You might still be you know, moving towards that kind of stuff. That's a really good point. One of the other things that's worth pointing out with the time per session increasing is that it does feel like a progression for the player. Like you feel like, oh, wow, I've gotten this far, you know, back when I started. Like There is a sense of an empire growing, like your legacy really actually having paid off. It feels very epic to have started off dying just in an instant to being able to take on things much stronger than you initially ever could have. Because each loop feels like starting a new game, which is what a roguelite should feel like. Yeah, you feel like oh, I'm starting a new game and I'm getting 40 minutes in this time. I'm starting a new game and I'm getting an hour in this time. When that's not necessarily true, you could make that progress in much shorter time. That's a feeling that the game is able to convey to you. And so in terms of feelings, that's about it for Rogue Legacy. But our next game has a lot of emotion in it, but also some interesting structure to how the game wants to be played. And that is Asura's Wrath. So Asura's Wrath is a 2012 Capcom and CyberConnect 2 production. It's a cinematic action game and it's continuing CyberConnect 2's continuous attempts to make the ultimate anime game. You might know them from making some anime license fighters like some Naruto products. Their passion is really about trying to bring anime to the gaming experience. And Asura's Wrath goes maybe further than any game in that it's structured like an anime about as much as you could possibly do. Each episode in the game is an episode with title credits coming next even ad breaks i don't play the ads but they have the the eye catches they spend a lot of time and effort to make every aspect of the game feel like an anime production that you are a part of to its benefit and its detriment there are a few great articles by scott juster who talks about how playing the game as like one marathon session can be a bit tedious in the same way that a number of shonen style anime can get a little bit repetitive if you just keep marathoning it but by playing it in smaller chunks like one or two episodes a day it feels very enjoyable and the things that become tedious in continuous play have a very sort of refreshing pleasant nature to them in smaller sessions and that is not to say that you can't binge play this game but keep in mind what kind of person you are like you know yourself best if you're the kind of person to binge watch an anime or a short-ish tv show then you're more likely to be able to binge play Asura's Wrath. Whereas if you're the kind of person who really enjoys it on a week-to-week basis, then it's probably better to just ration it out over a couple of days. And it is an intense, marvelous, and messy experience. So we've got the general 20-ish minute anime loop, as I think we're going to call it for the purposes of discussing. But there's also within that the more mechanical loop. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. 
So the primary gameplay for the player is what I would call a combat loop. This is one of the two interactive points in the game. Am I mis- so it's this and the rail rail shooter section. Am I missing anything else? You can't forget the quick time events. The quick time events. Yes. Okay. That are interspersed throughout the anime part. Yeah. 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 Okay. 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 So this is one of the few gameplay sections of the game where where the player is actually in control, and that's part of the charm of the game, right? That you really only are controlling it in certain sequences, and a lot of it is very cinematic and anime style. During those cinematic scenes, you are doing a fair number of quick time inputs. Yes. You should be holding the controller at all times. At all times. It's not as it's not a put the controller down and watch game, but you are doing quick time events. So you're not like moving the character around and stuff. However, there is a combat loop in the game where you are in control of Asura in effectively a boss fight. And, you know, one of this happens at least once per episode, sometimes multiple per anime loop. And the way this functions is very simplified and in its own way elegant because you're not whittling down a boss health bar. You are building up Asura's burst gauge. And so to balance this, you have to do this before you die. Asura has a health bar. Every time you get hit, you lose a bit of health. You can do a couple of things to not lose as much on a hit, but that's not super relevant to this discussion. Basically, the point is that you make progress by hitting the enemy and you're not hurting them per se. You're building Asura's burst gauge. You can literally hit the enemy forever and the fight will never end if you don't activate burst and first of all one of the reasons it's elegant is because it plays into the cinematic nature of the game like in a fighting game often enough you end the fight by depleting the health bar with a jab because you left them on a sliver of health and then you need to just end it right so they just get a dinky jab out the opponent just kind of falls to the knees and and ko's gets knocked out that's never going to be the case with the source wrath you're always going to end on a burst which means you always have a climactic sequence to end the combat loop on. So it's a great way of preventing ludonarrative dissonance, which is everyone's favorite term, because the system itself requires that you finish in a dramatic way, because it's mechanically impossible to not do so. I could easily ramble for a short thesis on the combat mechanics of the game, but I won't. I will restrain myself to saying that there are a couple more things to do with the combat, and there are a couple more gauges, but all of it, like, it doesn't really matter what they do and how they function, as far as the game loop is concerned, because all of it feeds into making the burst gauge fill at you know faster or in a more uh, tactile way because you get to do more actions you get to just spam buttons more and it all just ties into the game loop of hit opponent dodge opponent's attacks dodge opponent's counter attacks get close hit opponent until you can hit burst and that's the combat loop in essence Again, sometimes you do this multiple times per episode, but that's it. It's super simple, it's super elegant, and it fits the cinematic aspect of the game because while you're doing, you know, just hit the opponent, you're getting tiny bits of cinematic sequences. There are cutscenes involved where you get to counterattack, where you get to do a, not finisher blow, but when they're on the ground, you get to do an extra hard blow, and that sometimes has quick time events inside of it as well. And it keeps the player in this kind of, oh, it's so anime, like there, there's so much action going on. There is so much expressiveness. It's one of the things that Asura's Wrath is really good at. Looking at Asura's Wrath, it's very easy to see how extreme it is, but when you take a step back and you compare it to other, like not not even talking about current day stuff, but like contemporary titles, there is a certain expressiveness in the Asura's Wrath modeling animation style, and, and all of that feeds into the cinematic nature. And that doesn't just exist during cutscene, it exists during the combat loops as well, where mouths drop open wide, eyeballs kind of bulge out of people's heads and stuff like that to, to really sell a hit. So that's the combat loop in general at its core. 
And lots of little things in that combat loop help make it feel like the anime it wants to be. Like you were telling me the other day about the shooting mechanics, really not promoting the Bosuke very much. And so that's pushing you into the physical one-on-one combat where the game visually shines. Yeah. So while you have a ranged option, it doesn't itself immediately lend itself, push your burst gauge up, which means that in order to actually make progress in the combat loop, you have to get in close into fisticuffs to punch people and to knock them down and to get those finishing hits. And so A Serious Wrath uses these functions in conjunction with the time frame, the time structures of the episodes matching anime very specifically to really create this feeling of anime. And that's, I think, the really interesting to me about Asura's Wrath and Game Loops and Structure, which is Game Loops and Time, sorry, which is that it chose this very limited time frame in order to really sell that feeling of being an episode of anime. And it really stands out as being CyberConnect 2's ultimate anime game because it feels that way. You actually watched the entire thing as opposed to playing it, if I recall right, Blue. Yeah. As a watch experience, obviously it wasn't quite the same because you were listening to a Let's Player as well, but it really does sell that feeling really hard. It does everything in its power to sell you an anime that you can play. And there's definitely an interesting question as to whether that's a pursuit worth following. That's another topic for another time. That is a complete other topic for another time, unfortunately. But it's absolutely incredible seeing it executed so well. And here's the other kind of really smart thing, right? So the larger loop of the anime loop where you're playing a full episode, which involves all the cutscenes that you're watching with quick time events in there, the combat loop that you're doing, occasionally having something that we didn't talk about very much, a rail shooter section that is Panzer Dragoon-esque, that is Star Fox-esque. While all of those exist in that loop and you have this nice anime package and you think to yourself, oh, they were really restrained. Well, they actually played to that weakness, if that makes sense, because the primary combat loop doesn't hold up well in a long session. It, it needs the cinematic padding and the quick time event padding to make the combat loop satisfying. As much as the animation is good, they didn't add that much depth. I called it an elegant system for what it is because it fits really well and it accomplishes its purposes very well, but that's about it. It could not on its own be a standalone game. I don't think anyone has reasonably asked for Asura's Wrath Combat as just Asura's Wrath Combat the game. No, I've never heard anyone request that. Admittedly, a lot of people don't really talk much about Asura's Wrath, so that might factor into it too. But from what limited design experience I have, I can't look at that combat loop and go, that's a game waiting to be put into a better game. You know, like, that's not how this works. It works so in tandem with all the other aspects of the anime loop that just pulling it out as the primary gameplay mechanic and putting it into another game would not work very well. And that's a big part of how you start to schedule how much you want to play the game. And that's a big part of where that fatigue that you mentioned from the article coming from. It's just, there isn't that much gameplay variety. So you know exactly what you're going to get into. I don't think, there is no power-up progression in the game. So once you're through the tutorial levels, you know all the mechanics in the game. You get different animations and you get rewards by moving the story along, seeing new things, but you don't have to do any new things in the game. It's interesting you bring this up because this actually connects kind of neatly with an aspect of Grand Blue that I failed to talk about, which is that the mechanical gameplay is relatively simple. A lot of the combat is automated. So you wouldn't want to play just the mechanical combat of Grand Blue for 
hours on end unless you had something you're working specifically towards grind wise and it's interesting that grand blues approach is put an actual literal timer on it asura's wrath is sort of bury that amongst cutscenes to stop someone having too much of it at once yeah that's right there's definitely a notion now that cutscenes are just padding but padding works in the favor of this game because of what the combat loop is. And it's very chicken and egg situation. Did they need the padding because the combat wasn't good? Or did they design the combat to not be like to be this way, to be like super over the top and fatigue inducing? Because you know, it all feeds into itself. This game was designed to be this way, and for a lot of it it works. And that's while I have probably an hour left of a serious wrath discussion in me, that probably is the game loop um, to time relationship of Asura's Wrath. And so that's really everything that we wanted to say in this episode. So as a quick recap, we talked in this episode a lot about game loops and time. So game loops being, you know, the, the core activity in the game that you will do a number of times throughout the game that like carry you through, that can grow and have things latched onto it to get to a point where you're doing lots of complicated things at once, but you base it all on the core loop. We talked first about Monster Hunter World. And so its core loop is just going out and hunting a monster. And that has that 50 minute time limit on it. And then you get to mess with that in different ways. And so you have this clear distinction of this is how long a hunt is going to take you can plan around that then we have grand blue fantasy which creates habit and routine with its systems and its limitations to sort of just be a little bit in every part of your day followed by persona 4 which has this very literal calendar system and it takes you through the main character the protagonist's life effectively day to day over not quite a full year and you get this sense of structure of how much time you want to put in to you know go through a certain amount of days how much time does it take to go through a week how much time does it take to finish a dungeon all of that is something that you just instinctively learn as you play the game so you get this very not fine-tuned but rough sense of how long it takes to play a session to accomplish what you want in the next bit of the game and in Rogue Legacy, you've got potentially the chance to finish in single sessions, but usually for most players, you'll have this sort of slowly expanding play session length as you go on and on, which creates a sense of scale, but also Hellslayers feel like they're really progressing and accomplishing more and more things. And finally, Asura's Wrath, which is a game that models itself after a 20-minute TV show slash anime. And it doesn't always hit 20 minutes exact because the combat loop is a variable amount of time. But the amount of content you expect to see out of any given episode is about right and tries to end on cliffhangers as well. You know, it does all the typical uh, anime slash TV show stuff that's trying to be in this genre. Its structure is a thematic aspect as opposed to just a play aspect. Uh, it goes out of its way to design a lot of aspects around that and has a combat loop that fatigues you if you honest, honestly if you just play it back to back so that it pads itself out and so we hope that maybe you can look at how different games use time and their and design their play structures around time and maybe identify what they're trying to do with those with that scheduling and we'd like to hear back from you about games that you think structure their use of time in interesting ways and we'd love to have a bit of a conversation about that with you on either you can find us on twitter you could email us and we'll have all those details in the show notes thank you for listening thank you for listening